0: I'd also like to welcome you to Lakeside. We're beginning a series today in an Old Testament book called Esther. The book itself is named after one of the main characters within it. But if you're familiar or not with the story of Esther, you might not be as familiar with some of the unique characteristics of the book itself. But we're beginning it today and we're gonna continue throughout uh, the majority of now our summer to go through this amazing story. But one of the fascinating uh, truths about this book is that though it's contained for us in sacred scripture and we read it as part of God's word to us, it is one of the books in the Bible that throughout the entire book never makes direct reference to God himself. All of the events that take place Uh, captivate us. It's a a compelling story, but within the story itself, we don't get any uh, direct communication of the people in the story to God or insight from God to them in prayers or visions. And we also don't get any later commentary from New Testament passages on this very story. And so we read it and we're compelled by it, but the question of How do we rightly interpret it? And how do we make sense of why God would deem in his wisdom to include this story in our scripture that we would read it and learn from it and know it? And one of the reasons I submit to you is, as we've sung uh, much of today, affirming God's goodness over all creation, his sovereignty, his faithfulness in all of human experience, we as believers who profess that he's in charge of it all and he's working through it all, also struggle at times to realize that so much that seems to happen in this world happens by people who don't believe that. We believe he's in charge. We believe that he's working all things together for our good. But the majority of meetings that are taking place in a given week and the majority of decisions that are made at the level of companies or governments or nations aren't meetings that take place with an opening in prayer, with Uh, a long study of the scripture to seek, well, what does the God who made this whole universe have to say about this? So much that seems to take place in a given week in our lives and definitely true from a societal and a, 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 a larger national and even international level, so many things seem to happen by people who don't believe in him or who are actually hostile to him. And we as believers have to make sense of that. (laughs) We believe God made the world, that he designed it with certain principles, with intentionality, and yet so much of the world and what takes place in the world takes place by people who do not acknowledge his name, who don't give him credit, and who don't seek his counsel. And what we know to be the revealed will of God, of his desire for us, and his desire for our human flourishing, so many things happen that are contrary to that. That we say, God, how how did this happen in a world that you made? How did this type of suffering take place? How, How did this level of uncertainty, how did this person rise to power and now can make a decision that affects hundreds of thousands of people? We ask those kind of questions on a regular basis. And here, I submit to you, we have an entire book in the Old Testament that helps us wrestle with those questions. What is God up to when there are so many things going on and so many decisions being made by people who have no understanding of him and no desire to glorify him? We get this in the story of Esther. It's popular at a Sunday school level as sort of this young orphan girl who becomes queen uh, but this is a thoroughly adult book of the Bible. <laughs> and I hope even if you find yourself uh, familiar with the story as you hear her name, that as we go through this together in detail, you'll, you'll find yourself surprised by the depth and the insight that is within this book as it gives us a look at the world that we inhabit. So hopefully you found it by now. We're in Esther chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, you'll find it on page 410 and we'll read the first chapter in its entirety. Esther chapter one. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. And while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, and when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and Purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of potpourri, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Aptha, Zephar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged. And his anger burned within him. And then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Sethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom, "'According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? "'Because she has not performed the command "'of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs.' "'And then Memucan said, "'In the presence of the kings and of the officials, "'Well, not only against the king "'has Queen Vashti done wrong, "'but also against all the officials "'and all the peoples who were "'in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. "'For the queen's behavior will be made known "'to all women, causing them to look at their husbands "'with contempt, since they will say, "'King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti "'to be brought before him, and she did not come.' This very day, the noble women of Persian Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all of the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed. That Vashti is never again to come before the king, Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. And so when the, king, when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all of his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man may be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. And this will conclude our reading this morning. Though we've uh, read the chapter in its entirety and there were a bunch of names that even I struggle to pronounce in reading them and you'll struggle to ever remember them and you'll never name your kids after them, the main characters of the book of Esther, none of them were really introduced here even in this first chapter. This is almost entirely just setting the scene for what is the main plot and the drama and the figures who are involved but to to orient ourselves to where we are in the flow of redemptive history. Uh, Esther comes after Ezra and Nehemiah. For us in our Bibles, this is the last of the historical books and represents some of the last recorded activity that we have in sacred scripture before Jesus comes into the world as the Messiah who was promised. In this empire, which is the Persian empire, there had already been a fulfillment of some prophecy. And so Ezra and Nehemiah had been allowed with funding from the king of Persia to go back to Jerusalem and to start to rebuild the temple and over time rebuild the temple and rebuild the city walls around Jerusalem. So though the people of God were scattered throughout the known world at the time, and part of that was a punishment on their rejection of God's word and his ways, in the punishment that God gave, he also held out to them a promise that one day they would be able to return. And God had used Ahasuerus as his predecessor to begin that process. And King Darius of Persia sent uh, not only people back, but resources and money and material for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And so already people were seeing part of the fulfillment of God's prophecy to be faithful, even in judgment, to show mercy to his people. But what we then have here in the book of Esther is while all of that was going on there and many of the faithful were able to look and see the temple walls being restored, the city gates being restored, and they could look and say, wow, isn't God good to us? Isn't, he, isn't it amazing what he's working out before our eyes? We can see what he's doing. We get this book which says almost a sort of simultaneously and while that was happening... Here's what was still going on back in the capital city of the Persian Empire. Here's what was going on uh, miles and miles removed from Jerusalem, where there were still people who followed God, who were Jews, but they didn't have the direct experience of those who were a part of the rebuilding project back in Jerusalem. They were here. And what we see is that they're, they're in the presence of an amazing demonstration Of power and wealth. So the king, it lists, has this amazing reign from India to Ethiopia, the Persian Empire, the largest empire in human history up until this point in time of geographic territory. And here we're in the capital city, and with all the wealth and power, a party is thrown to celebrate this wealth. And so they see a six-month festival dedicated to celebrating the glory that is the Persian Empire. And then it says after that, after a 180-day festival with all of this amazing uh, resources uh, in it of of gold and silver and flowers and smells, then there's a seven-day feast also given. And all the best food and wine is brought and the invitation is no one's under compulsion, but you're allowed to have as much as you can imagine. As much as your body can handle and tolerate, eat, drink, and be merry. It's quite an amazing display of human power and achievement and government in the known world at that time. And that's the setting and the background in which this story takes place. And one of the first things that we learn, therefore, as we come to this, is taking uh, the definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, that Hebrews is the conviction of, or the, the conviction of things not seen. We're in a, a a day and age now where, for all those who remained near the capital of the Persian Empire, by faith they have to believe what they cannot see. Faith is the conviction of things not seen, because everything they see tells them that the Persian Empire is the best there is. I mean, who throws bigger, better parties? Who, whose borders are as large as this empire? And so if they're going to remain faithful to their God, who they believe is sovereign over all kingdoms, they're only going to be able to do that by faith, by maintaining the conviction of things not seen. Because everything they can see as this long, elaborate celebration is happening, as all of, this, all of these resources are being used to celebrate this empire, everything that they see is challenging what they believe and what they know to be true. Because this is a day and age when conflicts between countries wasn't just uh, interpreted in, in, in physical terms. You know, well, they had a better military, and so that's why they beat us. They spent more money on their defense than we did, and so that's why they won. No, no, no. Everything was interpreted, not just physically, but also spiritually, so that when a nation lost a battle in war, it was almost always also interpreted as the defeat of their gods, or whatever they worshipped. And so that there was not just physical realities at stake, but spiritual realities at stake as well. And so for these believers who are remaining here in the city for them to maintain faith and to follow after God is going to require what Hebrews says is that they maintain the conviction of things not seen. And we all struggle with that. We don't like that, but that is the nature of faith. We would rather walk by sight and not by faith, but the consistent theme throughout all of Scripture is that those who know God and love God and even believe in God's reign over all things, still, more often than not, it's designed that we walk by faith and not by sight. And so that even what we sung today already, we, we sang as expressions of our faith, not immediately as expressions of exactly how we felt yesterday morning. Right? Like if yesterday morning was one of the most frustrating days that we've ever had, or we got no sleep last night, and then we come into church and say, you're going to make me sing, morning and evening, sun, and rain, great is thy faithfulness? Like, where were you yesterday? Or where were you last night? Well, no, that's exactly what we're doing. We are by faith proclaiming that whether yesterday was the most frustrating of your experiences, last night you couldn't get any sleep. You received a phone call that changed everything for you in the last five days. Whatever that was, we do gather together and proclaim by faith that his faithfulness is great and that it's true in wintertime and in springtime on a good day and a bad day. That's what we sing. That's what we proclaim. Conviction, we really believe it. We're going to put it to music and add instrumentation and say it together in a way that we can all remember it. But part of what we are expressing, we are expressing by faith. We are not expressing what is for most of us the normal and regular and immediate experiences of what every day seems to be telling us. But we believe and have the conviction of things not seen. And so in this way, it was once, it was popularized in the 90s, a series of books were written called the Left Behind series. And there, the authors were imagining the end of the world and a period of time where for them, they anticipate that all believers from the earth will be removed from the earth. And so the series of novels was, What would the world be like if everyone who was a Christian was taken away from the world? Well, the book of Esther is almost the opposite of that. It is what is life like for the believer when everything that reminds someone they are a believer is taken from them? When they're the ones who've been left behind. Because for all of the Jews who are still near the capital of Persia or in the surrounding regions, they're not close to the temple they're not making sacrifices according to the law. They don't have any representation in the government of the day. They don't have anyone at the local police level or at the national military level who is looking out for them and who cares about their rights or their interests. And most of the things that tangibly remind them of God's promises to them as a people aren't present and that's what the book of Esther records for us what about those people who've been left behind who are still scattered who haven't seen and enjoyed and experienced the restored worship in the temple and heard someone say this is what happened in fulfillment of the prophet Jeremiah that one day God would bring us back no they're lost they're lonely they're scattered and they're wondering if the promises of God to them are still true is he going to keep his covenant commitment and promise to them who are scattered to them who are stranded to them who feel isolated and lost and alone or are those covenant promises only based on their ability to be together back in jerusalem And the reason that we have not only Ezra and Nehemiah but also the book of Esther is for God to say that his promises to us are unconditional. And just as he was faithful in his promise to bring those back to Jerusalem, his covenant commitments to his people are unchanging and eternal. And even if they find themselves in a place with no building, no place to gather for worship, no government that represents them or cares about their rights, no army to defend them. They still have God. That he cares about the lost and the lonely. And so we don't see in chapter one how immediately this plays out that God reveals himself because all we get is the background and the setting. But every name that we got and every description that was had was describing an empire that doesn't care about them people who are in positions of power and authority and celebrating feasts that don't have direct concern for the people of God. They control everything. They have the power. It seems like they're in charge, but that they do not have any direct concern for God's people. That's the time that we're in. So later in chapter 4, Mordecai says to Esther, maybe this all happened for such a time as this well, what time is it? This is the time. (laughs) This is desperate times. And as the saying goes, desperate times call for desperate measures. This is a desperate situation for these people. And a few chapters later, a plot will begin to unfold that puts all of them at risk. And all of the resources of the empire will be brought against them. And the question will be, well, how how are they going to be saved? How will they possibly be protected when everything by human understanding and measurement is stacked against them? And that's how the story unfolds in the book of Esther. That's the question that we ask. But every name that we saw unfold so the king's name, the queen's name, all of the counsels and the advisors that give them, none of these people are seeking ultimately the face of God or care at all about the people of God. So part of what chapter 1 does is a bit of satire. As it unfolds, and as the people of Israel are hearing this story, it's in some ways mocking the Persian Empire and mocking the ruler of the day. So that just like faith is the conviction of things not seen, we also need people who help us realize that things aren't always as they seem. And so this story is told about the king, but told in such a way that highlights that though it looks like he has all the power in the world, he's not as powerful as he thinks. And though it seems like they have authority from India to Ethiopia, none of them actually have authority in their own home. And so for Jews, even to this day, when they celebrate the Feast of Purim, they, one, read the entire book of Esther, they tell the story all over again, but part of what they recognize in the story is a mockery of the foreign leaders. And it's sort of a contrast. In Psalm chapter 2, it talks about how the nations uh, plot in vain against God and that God laughs in response to their plotting against him. And so the people of God in the retelling of this story and part of how this is written is meant to highlight the things aren't always as they seem. And so the king is told he throws a party at six months worth of celebration. They're all having a great time. He, and yet it says, though he rules from India to Ethiopia, though all of these provinces are under his control, he can lose control of himself with a bottle of wine pretty quickly. He can get to a place where he makes decisions that will put him in a compromising situation, embarrassed in front of everyone over whom he has authority and it tells a story to highlight that and so then he makes a command everyone's party everyone's partying it said in verse 8 that the edict was there's no compulsion you can have as little as you want you can have none or you can have as much as you want but then in verse 10 it tells us what the king did on the seventh day when the king was merry with wine he then commanded all of these people together which means he had as much as he liked He got to the place of being inebriated. He was drunk. And then he makes a decision in that frame of mind to say, have my wife come before everyone and I want to show her off. And she refuses to do it. And then he's left with a, oh, (laughs) what do I do? We just spent six months celebrating my power. We had a seven-day feast. I'm in charge of everything. And she says, you're not in charge of me. I'm not just going to do whatever you tell me to do because you tell me to do it. And then immediately he has to think through, what does this mean? And all of his advisors say, this isn't just bad news for you, this would be bad news for everyone. Don't you know that all our wives would act this way if they knew they could? (laughs) Which reveals a mocking level of insecurity for all of them. You think this one thing is going to affect everything? Yes. Yes so that this ruler of Persia is held up as someone who is incompetent and insecure. And it's a way that as the story is retold to the people of God to say, though none of them represent you, though none of them seem to care about you, they're not as powerful as they seem. They can't control everything it looks and seems like they can control. And that even the greatest of human power is so limited in what it can actually accomplish. And we again and again as human beings will reveal ourselves to be incompetent and reveal ourselves to be insecure. And so one of the ways that then they respond to this is that he asks for the advice of his advisors. They tell him, make an edict that she can never come in your presence again. If she wouldn't come this time, she's never allowed to come. And then make sure it's known all throughout, translated in every language of every province, that this is unacceptable. And here we read this and said, how are we supposed to make sense of this? In part, as satire highlighting the stupidity of those who seek to control things apart from God, who seek to rule and reign without reference to him who don't acknowledge in humility their limitations and their inabilities apart from him. That's why the quote in the back of your handout, uh, for those of you who are really paying attention, you'll realize it was the same as last week because I looked at it and said, this is just as applicable this week as it was in Acts chapter two, that God has a pattern of humbling the mighty and lifting the humble. God has a pattern of humbling the mighty and lifting the humble. What we're reading in chapter one as just background and setting for the real drama that takes place is highlighting the futility that those who think they're so powerful, in fact, aren't that powerful. Those who think that they can command and control and dictate everything that happens can't do as much as they seem. And the counter to that throughout the story of the book is that even when God isn't directly referenced or acknowledged, he is always doing more behind the scenes than what is visible to those who are up on stage that seem to be the main players and the main actors. And that's why the story of Esther is retold, that we would continue to have the conviction of, not, of those things not seen, that those who've been left behind would know that God is still present with them, And one of the ways he does that is to highlight for us that things aren't always as they seem. And we need that as encouragement in our daily lives for the experiences that we face on a regular basis. What does it mean to be faithful to God in the world that we live in today? That still, if we list out all the people that serve in all the various committees and positions of power and make decisions that affect not only themselves but entire nations and groups of people, How is it that so much that seems to happen happens without reference to God? And what is God up to in the midst of all of that? There's a book that I read recently. It's funny, I told Chad that I had two books coming up, so I wanted to make sure what kind of a stand I had. And he said, oh, you're bringing two kids' books up again? And I said, actually, no, the opposite of kids' books. Uh, These are some very serious books, which is a weird sort of insight into my personality is that I only read like children's literature or like very serious books and almost nothing just in between. So much so it came to me this week because uh, Mark Brunn, who helps organize our Midwest camp uh, that's going to be taking place in the first week of August, he asked for a couple of forum topics um, for, the, for adults throughout the week. And so I gave him two and they were two polar opposites. Uh, one was becoming like a child, receiving the kingdom with wonder, which I am intend to bring a bunch of children's books to uh, and show how children's literature is a wonderful avenue into what it means to have faith in God. And the second one I titled, Giving Up Childish Ways, uh, which comes from 1 Corinthians 13, a love that bears all things. So what I'm referencing now is in the category of the second, Giving Up Childish Ways, a love that bears all things, a faith that is really taking into account all of the experiences of life. So I read this book. It's called Silence. It's a historical novel that records the persecution of the Japanese government to Jesuit priests in the 17th century. It's a profound novel. It's graphic to read. As soon as I read it, I said, I don't ever want to watch the movie. And it's now a movie. Uh, Martin Scorsese put it to film this past year. And he was an interesting person to put it to film, but this is actually what he said about the book and reading it. He said, I picked up this novel for the first time almost 20 years ago. I've reread it countless times since, and I'm now preparing to adapt it as a film. It's given me a kind of sustenance that I've found in only very few works of art. Well, what, what is it that gives him that sustenance? This is his description. Silence is a story of a man who learns so painfully that God's love is more mysterious than he knows, that he leaves much more to the ways of men than we realize, and that he is always present, even in his silence. Now, the way that unfolds in the story, and the reason I wouldn't recommend to most of you to watch the movie, is because it depicts in very detail the suffering that these Jesuit priests and then the believers in Japan experienced. And the question that they wrestle with the whole time is, God, where are you? Why, are you being silent in the midst of all of this suffering? We can't discern what you're up to, what's going on. We're not seeing the deliverance that we believe is promised. And eventually the conviction that God is present even in the silence, but that it is so difficult along the way to interpret that. From this book, though, I I could recommend to most of you to read this one. It's called Jaber Crow, but here's a description of one of the characters within it about how a life of faith often unfolds. That instead of it being a straight line from point A to B, there's all kinds of struggle along the way. And so this is how he writes it. If you could do it, I suppose it would be a good idea to live your life in a straight line, starting, say, in the dark wood of air and proceeding by logical steps, through hell and purgatory and into heaven. Or you could take the king's highway, past appropriately named Dangerous Toils and Snares, and finally cross the river of death and enter the celestial city. But that's not the way I've done it so far. I'm a pilgrim, but my pilgrimage has been wandering and unmarked. Often what has looked like a straight line to me has been a circle or a doubling back. I've been in the dark wood of air any number of times. I've known something of hell, purgatory, and heaven, but not always in that order. The names of many snares and dangers have been made known to me, but I've seen them only in looking back. Often I've not known where I was going until I was already there. I've had my share of desires and goals, but my life has come to me, or I have gone to it mainly by way of mistakes and surprises. Often I have received better than I have deserved." Often my faintest hopes have rested on bad mistakes. I am an ignorant pilgrim crossing a dark valley. And yet for a long time looking back, I've been unable to shake off the feeling that I have been led. I have been unable to shake off the feeling that I have been led. That is a statement of faith that in the midst of ignorance, uncertainty, questions, doubts, all along the way, there's still an ability only in looking back to recognize that in some of those moments where God seemed the most distant and we were the most isolated and separated, that he was present all along, that he never really did leave us or forsake us, that he has always been keeping the promises and the commitment that he has made. And when we encounter those moments, like Esther chapter one in the description of all that's going on in Persia, we have to rest on the unchanging grace of God. So if in the first form, what I'm planning to do is mostly go through children's literature, in the second one, I'm planning mostly to go through hymns because I have found consistently that most of the hymns that have endured from generation to generation are the hymns that speak to the reality of what a life of faith means on a regular basis. And so the hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock, I stand in verse two. Though darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. What's the hymn writer speaking to? Saying, even as a believer in God, there are just some times when darkness comes. And in the darkness, we cannot see what he's doing. We can't make sense of it. God, if you're there and this is what you say and this is what your will is, how does this happen? How... And, and the, the, the writer's acknowledging that. There are times when darkness that we experience hides his face. And so then what does he say? In that moment, you and I need to rest on the nature of his unchanging grace. That if we don't by faith believe in the unchanging promises of God to us, then the darkness will get us to abandon our faith. That when we need it the most to rest on him and to rely upon him, we'll walk away from him. Instead of saying, no, 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 you you told me this was going to happen. You prepared me for this. You put whole books in the Bible to, to make sure that I would know that even in the periods of darkness, even in the periods of total silence, that you are still present. You are still working. You're still to be trusted. Your promises are true. That's why we need to study the scriptures together that help us to see the world as it is and to help us to understand what a life of faith really is. I'm blessed that for me, anxiety is not a particular struggle. That has very little to do with my actual faith and more to do with my personality. But I've seen now in my oldest son, in a very graphic way, what anxiety does to someone. Because he has a profound uh, struggle with anxiety. And when it triggers it almost immediately leads to a tunnel vision that loses any perspective of what's even within a five-foot radius of him. So that in one of the most uh, recent examples, it was just a sense of anxiety that developed that we weren't present. And he saying, he was asking for his brother then and saying, where is he? Where is he? And his brother was sitting right next to him. But you could physiologically see the anxiety creep up and the tunnel vision develop and this loss of the world that was just around him. And the opposite of that is a faith that truly trusts and rests in God, that actually maintains the panoramic view of everything that's around. That is a faith that we have with eyes wide open, that sees the real hurt and the real pain and the real risk but doesn't shut down but that says like we sing in uh, leaning on the everlasting arms what have I to dread what have I to fear leaning on the everlasting arms that's a hard song to sing you say, wait there's a lot to fear there's a lot to dread but you say no no, no if we're leaning on the everlasting arms, if we have an adult faith that has our eyes wide open to the world and we can see how God has worked in history in an unchanging way in his grace, then we can sing about his faithfulness morning and evening, winter and summer. And we can proclaim that and it gives us what we need to live every day because we're here on a Sunday morning. Most of you have taken the time to get dressed up, to come and to be prepared. But your faith will be challenged, if not already, in some way where you'll spend five days in a bland and sterile hospital room. And everything around you will make you feel like you're alone and you've been left behind. And it's in that moment that what we do here is supposed to encourage you that there in that experience you would know and say, I'm not alone here. He is still faithful. His promises for me are unconditional. He's not right now abandoning me. He's actually with me in ways that I would never know apart from this. And that's what the book of Esther is written for for all those who've been left behind, who are lost, poor, and powerless, scattered throughout an empire that doesn't care for them, to say God's still at work. And so now we will sing together about all the poor and powerless and how we will be able to shout and to sing hallelujah because God has not abandoned us, but he's present with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that even in desperate times when all of the power and the card seem stacked against us when people who rise to power seem indifferent to you when we're unsure of what exactly our rights will be what our freedoms will be to be identified as your people when it's hard for us from our limited perspective to truly know what you're doing on a day-to-day basis, that we can rest on the knowledge of your unchanging love and grace, that you are the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you do care about the lost and the left out, the poor and the powerless, that you are the God who hears their cries and sees them in their need and who works on our behalf even in ways that we can't see to bring about our salvation. And so we give you now the praise and the glory that's due your name. And it's in your son's name we pray.